This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nicole Salengo, the winemaker at Berryessa Gap Vineyards. Very excited about this. So Nicole brings over a decade of experience and passion that spans two hemispheres and a wide variety of wineries to Berryessa Gap Vineyards, located in Winters, California. Originally from New England, she moved to Davis after college, where she earned her winemaker certificate from UC Davis Department of Viticultural and Enology, and that was to complement her undergraduate study of geology. Nicole is deeply passionate about the unique regional terroir of Yolo County, where she's proud to showcase the best of the region with her hands-on winemaking approach. She can be often found walking through the vineyards, meticulously checking the vines, or tirelessly checking the barrels in the cellar. It's a pleasure to welcome the lovely and charming Nicole Salengo to the Vine Guy podcast today. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's Hi, Nicole. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. I'm now, very happy to be here. I was so excited when I met you a few weeks ago in San Francisco and that we were able to make this work because this is just, I was smitten by you, wow. smitten Jeez. by you in uh, San Francisco when we had an opportunity to share a quick glass of wine. But then later on is uh, Zap, which is where we met, mm-hmm. as that went on and, and got to know you a little bit more. I can't tell you how incredibly impressed I was with not just you as a person, which I am, but your wines, which are amazing because I was embarrassed that I'd never heard of Winters, California. And I'm a fifth generation Californian, and you would think, oh, you know, I've kind of been around. I haven't been there. So let's start off by telling me where Winters is. I like to say that Winters is a bit of a hidden gem. Um, It's a small farming community that is about 15 miles west of Davis and about 30 miles east of Napa. We're in the foothills of the coastal range. Cool. Okay. Coast of Lake Berryessa. That's our name. So you've been all over the world. You've done several harvests in both hemispheres. Why winters? Great question. Uh, I think winters is a unique area to grow different varieties. Uh, The wines that I'm making are more suited for a warmer climate, perfect for the winter's weather, our proximity to Lake Berryessa, we get strong winds in the evening and great ripening during the day. So that diurnal variation is perfect for grapes. Winters, for me, growing up Vermont and also upstate New York, it just called to me. Uh, I, after college, moved to the city of Davis and worked in Folsom, California. And, you know, I'm not so much a city girl. So when it came time to settle down and buy a house, uh, I really found myself gravitating to the winter's area. So I I moved there about 10 years ago. And funny thing, I was going over the hill, as they say, because our winery is right on 128, and it goes over to Napa. So I was traveling right by Berryessa Gap Vineyards daily, thinking, how wonderful would it be if my commute was just a couple miles long and I was just able to work right here. But winter's is a hidden gem, if you will. The population right now is under 8,000. Strong agricultural history. There's a lot of microclimates there. Um, I mentioned the proximity to the lake, but also the coastal range, and we're at the edge of the Central Valley. There's a lot of interesting geological things that have happened there historically to also create pretty special soils, in my opinion. Having an interest in geology, as you do, your undergraduate degree, what is it about that particular area or the soils there that have really attracted you? Because I know we were talking earlier and you said you really like challenges. 
and you think, yes, you know, I, I want to make, I, I want to improve every single day. There's something I want to make better every single day. So what is it about maybe the soils or the area in winters where you really kind of feel that that's something that's a challenge for you? Really undiscovered in many ways in terms of winemaking. Well, but, I certainly didn't know about it. And that's something I commonly get. Uh, but once people taste the wines, they, they seem to be impressed. So I hope you feel the same, Scott. Well, we will. So later on, we're you know in the tasting portion uh, of our podcast, we're going to go ahead and try some of those wines. But I'm very interested just in this whole journey that you've taken. Now, I know that you, after graduating college, you literally just packed up a suitcase Came out to California. You'd never been to California before. True. Um, you were looking at several degree programs in geology. Correct. And you settled on Davis. But what hooked you on winemaking? Where did that cog catch, so to speak? I usually say it's process of elimination. It's the first thing that I discovered in my life that I wasn't bored with after a couple of years. You but get bored easily, huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, as I said, I like a challenge, so kind of fits. Thinking back, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a vet. Then I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. Then I found a passion within environmental science that was geology. And that's what brought me to California because I wanted to study geology. And once I came to California, that's where I discovered wine. And I I say for me, I was afforded some really special opportunities. And some people saw a talent in me that I didn't see and gave me the chance. So it was just a combination of a lot of factors. I also think I have a good palate. So when did when did you discover that you had a good palate? Probably in college, actually. I went to a SUNY school, State University of New York, at Oneonta, and I was working at Brewery Omagang or Omagang. They, at the time, that company was also importing Belgian beer. So that was when I first had the chance to taste a lot of different styles of adult beverages. I was just 21. <laughs> oh, good. Just under the wire. <laughs> and I was also at the same time fascinated by the history and the story of, um, you know, these Trappist ales that were being imported that had been made for thousands of years. I was just really fascinated with the whole package and became interested in the science aspect after just generally being interested and after I came to California, I was my first job out of college. I was working at a lab. So I was exposed to a lot of chemistry. And I was taking a lot of chemistry courses to get further in the company before I got really bored with it and just quit and got a job at a wine shop. And wow. kind of that's where my wine story begins. So somebody else at some point, though, recognized that you had a palate. Yeah. Uh, the owner of that wine shop. So this was in Davis, a small European wine shop. It was called Tuco's. Good name for a shop. Yeah. <laughs> Tuco's. Um, the owner's wife was Portuguese, and, it, it, uh, and it's Hugo, so she said Tuco. Anyway. And that's how it happened. Yeah. Um, but that was a really special place, and I was not anticipating it. I thought I was just going to have a job, and I was going to take some classes and get into grad school. Uh, but the way it turned out, the owner kind of took me under his wing and he was a very experienced traveler and wine collector and that's why he started the shop it was his second career he took me with him to all the tastings i was meeting with nice. you know all the wine representatives i was meeting with winemakers that were traveling to davis to show their wines i was also in the heart of you know vne uh, uc davis so i had a, a lot of exposure to all of the professors and students that were there so it's a good combination of a lot of things Nicole, do you remember the first 
wine that you kind of had that aha moment while you were working that job oh, at Tuco's? Was there, you know, you yeah. went to a tasting and you went, oh, okay, that's it. Now I, I do. Well, it. it was the, uh, yes, I know the wine, absolutely. And I remember the experience because I was very much put on the spot and I wasn't yet wine buyer at the shop and it was a test. So this couple that would come in all the time, but had particular taste and they were very into their food and wine pairing. And I, I can't, <laughs> it was a pork dish of some sort. I don't remember the exact recipe. And the owner said, I'd like you to pick out a bottle for this couple. And I thought to myself, oh gosh, they send back bottles all the time. I don't know. I don't really want to do oh, this. They were that couple. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasn't feeling very confident, but I knew it. I Actually, it just came very quickly to me. I had a mental catalog of all the wines in the shop. I had tasted them all. I was pretty excited about them. So I, I picked a Vacaress to go with this pork. And the owner and the couple, they told me later that they were shocked because it wasn't a wine that they would have picked and it paired perfectly. And wow. I truly love French wines. I am, I am making wine in California, but I try to model my style after that leaner, lower alcohol style, which is hard to do in a warmer climate. It is. But I'm getting harder. Oh, yes. We have tools for that. As, as we continue to get warmer. So tell me a little bit about uh, Berryessa Gap Vineyards. I don't know much about it other than I know you, and I'm happy to know you, but I, tell me a little bit about the property, uh, the history of it. I'd love to know. I'm happy to know you too, Scott. Oh, this has thanks. been a wonderful uh, opportunity to get to meet and talk with you. Berryessa Gap is one winery in winters. They We grow all of our own grapes. Everything's estate-grown. We have one vineyard site. Okay. 60 acres. 60. And okay. the story, Pretty good size. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty lucky because we have many different soil types. It's quite hilly, so there's a lot of different aspects. But the reason that the winery started was in the family that I work for, the Martinez family, their father started a rootstock company in the 60s uh, before people were even thinking about planting vines on rootstock. And that business is still in existence today. It's very popular. The Martinez family, they have a long history of working with UC Davis and uh, basically researching what will grow best in the area. So they planted the vineyard around 2000. And I'm the second winemaker there. I came along in 2013. And I feel lucky that I came to the company kind of when the vineyard's at its prime. The nice thing is the Martinez family, they have access to all this great plant material. And, you know, we, we have a lot of options because of their history and their company. So the two things that I want to kind of point out, one is the rootstock in the 60s, most, and the, and the wine industry wasn't booming back then, right? Not, probably not maybe a dozen wineries going on in Napa. If if that, I might, I'd have to research it, but I can't imagine there'd be more than a dozen. And they were probably doing what they call own root vines, Tell me a little bit about what rootstock is. Not everybody, make sure everybody who's listening knows <clears throat> what we mean when we're talking about rootstock versus uh, own, root. Know, own root. Absolutely. There's a story of why we have rootstock and I'll... Do tell. <laughs> have you ever heard of the word phylloxera? Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> so of the French. <laughs> yes. We have rootstock today because of phylloxera. Wine industry in France was almost wiped out because of this disease. And it's actually louse. A vine louse. That feeds on the roots of the plant. So you can't see it. It feeds on the roots and slowly eats away your plant and it spreads pretty quickly. So in France, when you have a lot of 
vineyards on top of each other, it doesn't take much to spread. Right. Cross contamination so. and it did wipe out. I know it 90%. wiped out Bordeaux. Did it wipe out other vineyard areas as well? Absolutely, most of France. Wow. So us being California and a more newly developed wine region historically, we utilize this knowledge and came up with rootstock. So rootstock is along the lines of... That's phylloxera resistant. Yes. So rootstock is the actual rooting of the vine that you plant in the ground. There are many different types and they're actually still developing more. And depending on the type of soil you're growing it, uh, planting your vineyard in, depending on the climate, depending on any pests that might be persistent in the area, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe you want, depending on the type of grapes, you're actually going to graft onto that rootstock. Maybe you want something that's more rigorous versus not. There's a lot of options. And the main reason we have rootstock is to uh, fine tune and avoid all these pests and diseases that we need to resist. If you're investing in a vineyard, it's extremely expensive. So you want to right. You want to Make do the sure best you're doing it right. Can, right. Yeah. So you want the best rootstock, which again is going to be resistant to certain uh, diseases or thrive in certain soil conditions, uh, and also support different grape varieties that you graft onto it. So the difference between own rooted is where the plant already comes, I guess, self-contained for lack of a better word. Right. You have a already have a vine, uh, grape vine, and and root stock all in one, and you just. Propagate shove that it. in the right. Shove that in the ground and, and watch it grow. Versus rootstocks, where you can really kind of, as you said, fine tune and kind of dial in the rootstock and grafted variety to really take advantage of the soil climate terroir, as I like to say. I love it. Uh, now, the other point though that I wanted to also make is that you had that early in the podcast. You said you had this dream of wouldn't it be nice if I could just shorten my commute, and here you are. At, Berryessa Gap, you've shortened your commute. <laughs> You're right. Um, actually, while I was in New Zealand, the, I was working at a small winery part-time in Davis, and the, I had just graduated from the winemaking certificate program, and my plan was after I came back from New Zealand, I was going to get a winery job. Well, even before I got back from New Zealand, Berryessa Gap, you know, my my current bosses there contacted me and asked for a meeting. I didn't realize that their original winemaker, who was a real cool guy, he uh, he was the manager of the viticulture department at UC Davis until what? he retired recently. So wow. he helped develop the brand. And in 2013, when I came along, I've just been trying to improve the quality and kind of make a name for this area. Referencing rootstock again, it's all quality driven, right? We're, mm. we're all learning all the time, and this is perfect example. Rootstock's very important, and we just didn't know about it 100 years ago. But thank goodness families like the Martinez's, um, yeah. you know, uh, we're they, such great farmers. A, and have a plethora of rootstock. And they do. Um, they're known for very high-quality rootstock, very clean rootstock. They work closely on quarantining and testing everything. So uh, I, I really appreciate their level of quality and working for them. Well, they're lucky to have you because having spent a little bit of time with you, I know what a perfectionist you are. You're, you're not just a winemaker. 
you love walking in the vineyard. You like making sure that everything's just right. Like I know that you make sure your equipment's super clean. You spend time in the barrel room. You probably even sing. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if I found out you're down in the barrel room singing to your wines. It just you strike me as the type of person that really cares about every single aspect in your winemaking, from a literally grape to bottle. Yeah, it is all in the details for me. And uh, Scott, you don't want to hear my singing voice. Really? <laughs> Maybe the wines do. <laughs> but I, I will tell you when I'm uh, growing yeast for inoculations, I do I'm, I have a superstition that we have to have good music playing. And uh-huh. So, you know, the yeast is becoming alive and has to come back to life in this environment where it's going to be happy. That's quite important. But wine to me is uh, an experience and it's holistic. So it's not just in the cellar. What do you and mean? We, what do you mean? What do I mean? Well, like, what do you mean it's holistic and it's not just something in the cellar? I mean, I think when I hear somebody say wine is holistic, I think that it to me means that wine ties us to a place or a person or a memory for me. Uh, yes. So I 100% feel the same. And for me, wine does, a good wine will take you to a place. And it's almost like a religious experience. <laughs> what place do you want your wine to take us? Oh, um, I will start by saying that a little piece of my soul is in each and every one of those bottles. Oh, I do try really I hard. That. <laughs> I I try really hard to, uh, I have a vision for each variety that we're making. And hopefully you, it brings you to winters. It's a very beautiful area. And hopefully you get a feel for my personality as well in that, that wine. Um, but more importantly, we're making these varieties that a lot of people haven't heard of or known about. So I feel that I have kind of a, a bigger mission to bring these varieties to wine drinkers. And I try to keep all the varieties 100% true to the variety because I do realize there are not a lot of vineyards in winters so I want people to understand the terroir as well as the variety, as well as my winemaking style all at once. Very cool. And when you say, and I know for the fact that because having tasted your Primitiva, for example, how variety specific and true to that variety it is, uh, you aren't just talking the talk. You're making the wine exactly like that. But I have to say, when you talk about the varieties, if I've got this right, five different whites, two rosés, six reds, and I feel like we should finish with a partridge in a pear tree. (laughs) It's a lot of wine you're making, Nicole. Life is, you got to keep it exciting. It's a lot of different wine. It's true. So we are going to try some. I'm going to be excited about that in a minute. Good. I hope you like them. Yep. But yeah, that makes for a really long harvest. You know, we, our harvest, I start picking Sauvignon Blanc at the end of July because I like a nice underripe. Wow. We pick it at really low bricks to retain the natural acidity. Okay. And then we're bringing in our Barbera, our Italian variety, in October. Oh, my so, gosh. You, that is amazingly long. <laughs> wow. You're, it's a marathon is what I it, tell the interns. But then I guess for you as a winemaker, at least it gives you a chance to get these wines you know, going into fermentation before the next one comes in the door. So from your perspective, that I, I get it. It's preferred. Yeah. I like to think we have a white season and a red season. I like that. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I also understand that you're starting your own label. Oh, yes. Um, Let's talk about that. I'm very excited about that. So with the support of Berriessa Gap and the Martinez family, they're helping me to start Salingo Wines. 
and it's just going to be a small premium wine label. And I made my first seven, you know, three barrels of 100% Grenache, which okay. is my current favorite variety. Okay. Um, that will be bottled in April, and I'm still working on the label design. But we're, you know, it's in process, and. Yeah, I, all right, make I'm sure pretty I get excited a about it. Well, you got it, Scott. Because I will tell you that I love all God's children, but <laughs> Grenache is one of my favorites. Oh, really? I adore Grenache. If we could talk about an aha moment. Uh, I was in Chateauneuf de Pop, and I saw a sign that said Chateau Reyes. Rust, rusty old sign in an arrow. And I was lost, and I just went up this dirt road, and I was looking for the winery, and it was just this old cement building, and there was this man out front tending to the vines and I didn't speak French but luckily he spoke Spanish so I asked him where the winemaker was and I told him I was traveling from California and I used to buy their label years ago before I got into production and uh, long story short I eventually after a couple of hours the winemaker came barreling up the the dirt road and got out and said a bunch of stuff in French and then after that these two German men came that luckily spoke English and French. So they essentially <laughs> translated yeah. this really special uh, tour and that finished with a barrel tasting. And that was in 2016. Wow. So we're tasted the best wine I've had in my life was this Pignon, this 100% Grenache uh, 2015 in barrel at that in winery. Barrel. So that really inspired me to... I haven't I, even been blended yet. No. And it was beautiful on its own. So that's why I'm doing like 100%. You. Oh, you're so kind. <laughs> I'm blushing. Yeah. She is. If you could see this, <laughs> if we had television here in the studio. So the varieties, you, so five, ten, seven, oh, yeah. 13 varieties that you're making mm. there. You're going to make Grenache at your winery. Are you, are you going to expand that? Yeah. Um, so I'm making it at the cellar that I currently work in okay. at Various Agat Vineyards. I will expand it. I actually want to focus on high-end fruit and focus on Yolo County because okay. we're there are many beautiful vineyards there. Some are organic. Most of them, honestly, we are just the grapes are sold and blended to, you know, Napa and Sonoma wineries. So I kind of want to give these vineyards a chance to make wanna, it all the way to bottle. You want to showcase YOLO. Yes, I do. Yeah. And I'm And you know, YOLO is you only live once. <laughs> Right? So true. Y-O-L-O. You only live once. you know it. So yeah, Yolo County. um, Yolo County, neighbors, Napa County. We are just over the Vaca Mountains or the coastal range from Napa. So close proximity. I spent a lot of time there tasting. It's a beautiful and special place. And the reason I chose not to work there is because, frankly, I I don't want to be boxed in, if you will. And Um, you like a challenge. And I do like a challenge. So the fact that I can work, I mean, I've worked with over 50 varieties at this point in my life. And each variety is very different. Each vineyard site that you're working with is very different. And it's all about honing in my craft. So however I could do that best, that's really what I'm after. Well, we're going to find out how you've honed in your craft with these three wines right here, because it has now come to the point in our podcast (laughs) where we open the bottles and we try the wines. So... I'm very excited for this. I am too. This is going to be really cool because I had the Primitiva with you before. That is 100%. On our first date. Yes. And I'm really looking forward now to uh, seeing what else we've got in the glass. So I see that we're going to start off with a white wine. I brought a white wine and two reds today, Scott. Okay. What are we trying first? Many may have not have heard of this variety, but it speaks to the Spanish heritage of the family I work for, as well as Winters has huge Hispanic uh, population, but wow. we are tasting Verdejo. 
Mm. I feel like I just bit into a cross between a nectarine and a peach, and it's juicy and wonderful, and it's running down my chin. And well, not the wine. <laughs> In my mind, mm-hmm. the kind of a just a brilliant upfront pop of that orchard fruit. I'm glad and, that you get that. That's absolutely what I'm going for. It's all about. I love acid in wine. If yeah. you don't have a good acid profile, I'm not too interested. This variety, actually, I did. I traveled to Ru- Rueda, where Verdejo originated in Spain. Um, it's in northwestern Spain. Oh, And yeah. there's a lot of different styles being bueno. made there. Thank you. I'm so glad you like it. So the style that I like, because I have worked with this variety for six years now, uh, I like a stainless fermented, kind of in the middle of the road in terms of ripeness, okay, because you get some nice citrus flavors, but then I also get what the tropical and uh, stone fruit flavors that you noticed, yeah. And I also get a pithiness that. Yeah, interesting. I'm I'm almost getting like a an almond kind of thing yeah, going on. Yeah, I see there, that in the finish. I really love in the finish. So I love that you picked that up. Um, a little secret. Uh oh. I I you... aged this wine in acacia barrels. <laughs> so stainless from. I love experimentation and. Wow. I am very excited about what we're doing with the Verdejo, and I do feel like we've honed it in to where I want mm. it to be. And I think the acacia barrel has really added uh, that mouthfeel as well as this this finish that you're tasting. So it's really awesome that you picked that up. I just, you know, I wished I had like a big grilled prawn or something right now. It would be with going with this. Just it's great. It's and I never ask this, but I'm going to ask this. If I were to buy this in a, a wine shop, any idea what I would be looking at? So the Verdejo is 23. 23? We make 275 cases of it. So not a lot. No. Our total production is hopefully we'll grow to 10,000 someday because I think that's what the vineyard is capable of. But I've been bottling between four and 6,000 cases since oh. I have been working there. And the objective is Bottle to make- more of this. Oh, thank you. Okay. Yeah, we did just plant another white block, so that's great advice. That's a really lovely wine. And thank I've you. never, I shouldn't say never, I don't recall ever having a domestic Verdejo. The company has a great story. Berryessa Gap petitioned mm-hmm. the TTB, I believe it was in 2012, somewhere around there, right before I came on board. Verdejo wasn't a recognized variety in the United States. So we were making a Verdejo. They were growing a Verdejo, but they had to legally label it white wine, even though it was 100% with this Verdejo variety. So the company went through the process of petitioning, and they got it approved. So now anyone who grows Verdejo can put it on the label, including us. Well, so thank you, Berryessa Gap. Thank you. Are you the only one? I mean, again, I've never had a domestic Verdejo, because uh-huh. evidently it's just been called white wine <laughs> <laughs> up until, until now. Yeah. Uh, anybody else making it in the Yes, area? I've had a few. I okay. can't think of any specific producers. On You know, you yeah. get a crush report every year. So it's very small percentage. There's yeah. like less than cool. 100 well, I'm glad acres planted. Well, thank you. That's very And nice. again, yeah, focusing on different, but we do find that this variety. Having met you, it's thrives. not unusual that you're focusing on different. Well, thank you. <laughs> All right. What's the uh, you have? Uh, we have three wines in front of us. So that was the white. Now I've got a, a red. Yeah. Um, Whoa. Oh my god. So now we're about to taste the 2016 Malbec. My whole philosophy in wine is it's all about you know it's like when you meet people. First impression is quite important. So if a wine isn't there aromatically, I 
won't put it in model. And I hope you're noticing the aromas on these wines. Oh, yeah. I think I've, the Malbec's I've, quite special. This one takes me back to my childhood. When I grew up in Central California, one of my first jobs was working in a um, horse stable. And there were times when you, you would get these new saddles in and you would open up the box or the crate and that new saddle leather would just come rushing out. And that's the pop I'm getting in the in the bouquet of this wine is that beautiful, fresh saddle leather right up front. I mean, wow, it just is. I want to go. I want to go horseback riding. I love it with this wine. Is Do you get that? I do. Um, I have to tell you, our wines tend to be quite fruit forward. And I work hard to try to balance other nuances like spice and leather. And I am so oh, happy yeah. that you picked up oh. on that. And in the yeah, on the palate. More spice and leather, and and berry. There's berry in yeah. there, Hopefully. but they're kind of in equal parts. Well, Normally, you get this big fruit bang, and um, in this, it's you you get the fruit um, again, red, even dark fruit in this. But I'm also keeping that leather, and there's like a a dried herb spice to it, and it's all in harmony. Excellent. Well, that's exciting. she's writing notes. I'm, I'm writing tasting notes. Well, you know. <laughs> I get a lot of plum and a juiciness in this wine along Dark with... plum for me. Thank yeah. you. Good. Yeah, yeah I, sometimes I see colors when I'm tasting wine, so I think it is very purple. Our Malbec is quite purple. You're, anyway. You see colors when you um, taste the wine. Yeah, so plum there's is a, purple. There's like a name for... It's not dyskinesia, but there's like a, a word... I can't remember the name of the, uh, of the neurological pathway where people will see colors when they smell things. And I do have a pretty uh, crazy sense of smell, I'd like to say. I mean, it's a gift and a curse day to day. <laughs> but going back to how uh, the aromas are very important in the wow. wines that I'm making. So to talk about the Malbec block um, that we have, it's just uh, four and a half acres. No, it's about five acres. And it's planted on three different rootstocks. Of course. And those on those rootstocks uh, are three different Malbec clones. The gradient is quite large. It's probably about uh, 100 feet in elevation approximately. So from the top to the bottom, you're just going to get a lot of variation. And in the cellar, I ferment everything in really small lots. Well, not really small. I was just going to ask that. So they're about a little over a ton. Okay. So we ferment in these ton fermenters. It's all the reason that size is perfect for me is all about temperature control. I'm not fermenting anything in large tanks with any glycol cooling. Uh, the way that we cool is through the punch down process. So I actually start all of our fermentations with whole berry, which you get all a little, whole berry. little carbonic maceration to start. But the idea is as you're mixing and punching down your bins throughout the fermentation, you're breaking everything open and so you're getting not some using any flavors. Jackets, cooled jackets on your fermenters. It's all through punch down. Yeah. And oh, that's old school. Yeah, we are very old school. Um, but I, I embrace technology and science at the same time. The Malbec to me, you know, I I enjoy Malbec as a variety. Sometimes it can be a little boring, a little one dimensional. So not this one. That's I'm trying to kind of make this a little complex, and I think all those aspects that we talked about. And then also, from a barrel standpoint, I use a lot of different coopers. Zero new oak okay. in my winemaking program. Um, it, it I want the fruit to in express your, in itself. In your winemaking program, period? Zero. You don't have... So you're getting your barrel somewhere. Yes. I source from re- very reliable okay. sources. Um, all French oak, all once used. 
the lighter the wine in body and texture, I will use a second 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 use barrel. So the wine tells you what kind of oak it would like to complement it. And I don't think 100% new oak complements our style wines. It looks like salt, right? You're right. I didn't even think about it like that. A little bit is perfect. You're right. And, And sometimes that's all it takes. So the Malbec you're blending... You you have the luxury of blending a bunch of different lots to get this result, which is that's correct. Delish. And to be honest, we're at our largest production, and we are bottling everything from that block of Malbec. So oh, we're really? doing. So you're not selling any fruit. This is all estate grown. Yeah, that's correct. And we're at the point where we're picking all of the grapes from our estate. I'm making it all into wine, and the objective is it'll all go into bottling. You know, everyone will live happily ever after. I'm sorry that this is a podcast because if you could see her smile right now, it's, it lights up a room. Oh, thank yeah. you. I'm, I'm very excited about what I do. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so the third wine, uh, we have another red. Oh, yes. Tell me about this one. Tempranillo, Scott. Tempranillo. So you were insistent on opening this. Yes, um, ladies and gentlemen, she brought like a dozen wines with her today, I and I made her only open three. Yes. but she said, and, and she kept going back and forth and back and forth, and finally she said, "We're we're opening this one, and the Tempranillo, the 2016 Tempranillo, another Spanish. It is. Yeah. So these Spanish varieties do express themselves in a beautiful way in winters and. I mentioned there's a lot of microclimates. I think the area where our vineyard is is a wow. special microclimate. So the Tempranillo is at the northernmost part of our vineyard, and it's the red variety that we have the most of. And I, I'll admit, Tempranillo is a different animal. It the way is. that people say that Pinot is a challenge to make in a cool climate, Tempranillo truly is temperamental. You know, this warm climate grape. I've worked with over 50 varieties in, in Yolo County, and... Tempranillo is the biggest challenge. It requires has different oxygen requirements throughout aging and the fermentation. 2016 was my third year ever making it. It's closest to my vision for this wine. It has some complexity. Uh, it has that red fruit. It will age well. I had just come back from Rioja right before this vintage, so it was huh. very fresh in my mind. I mm-hmm. That's and I told you I'm going to Ribera del Duero shortly, which is my favorite. Oh well, region. you know what? After we after we wrap this up, you have to kind of give me a primer on that. Oh, you got to go to the caves too. I've not been to Ribera del Duero, so I'm looking forward to it. But Tempranillo in your vineyard is different than my experience with Tempranillo in Spain that I'm that I associate oh, with in Rioja. Absolutely delicious in in a very different style though. In a very different way. I'm trying to figure out how to even describe it. This is a modern style Tempranillo. Yeah. Made by a modern lady. That would you're be not you. gonna you're not gonna get, you know, <laughs> we don't foot tread, we don't use a ton of American oak like they do in Rioja. As I said, you know, the Tempranillo tends to have for us uh more of a red fruit profile. It I think of the clay. So you get a lot of the soil flavor from this vineyard exactly. block. Yeah. And I also get it's got an dried rose petals. Yeah, there's a lot of nuanced that, flavors. That's it. I would not have picked that up if you hadn't said rose petals. Uh-huh. It's Yeah, I like that. We have two different clones of Tempranillo planted. One is the clone that's dominant in Ribeiro del Duero. The other is the one that's dominant in Rioja. So the Rioja selection... Cross-border. <laughs> I know. Is what the majority of this wine is. Okay. Um, and that is a lot more red fruit versus the other, the first one I mentioned, uh, 
it has thicker skins, smaller berries. You know, it's just quite different. So that adds the backbone, whereas the the Rioja clone for us in our, in winters uh, produces a lot of that juicy red fruit and Re- spice. Yeah, you, you're referencing red fruit, and I'm I'm thinking more of the for me, red plum. I'm not getting what I would associate with red cherry. No, not cherry. Fruit. I'm definitely getting red plum. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, we get cherry and other varieties we make, not the Tempranillo. Yeah, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but it's a maybe a touch of super ripe cranberry. Not that cranberry gets super ripe, but you know, it's kind of, I get like a little tartness yeah, um, uh, on it that's just refreshing. I think Tempranillo to be very food friendly. Yeah, what, and, what should we have with this? Oh, <laughs> what, what would you, I'm curious, what would you pair with this? That's so funny. Tacos. Tacos. <laughs> I would love some carnitas right now with this Tempranillo. Ah, <laughs> uh, really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But if you're talking more, uh, you know, fine dining, I think no, I... it's medium bodied, but also has some lasting t- fine grain tannins in the finish. So it would stand up to like a. I was thinking veal chop. Ooh, that sounds great. I would love to have this with like a veal chop. Okay. Let's Just try it. Let's try it. That's Scott's right. recommendation. And I do like we the carnitas tacos idea. So it could, you know what? I, I like this wine because it can either dress up or it can dress down. Absolutely. Yeah. Tempranillo is pretty special and it is a variety that is popularly grown in winters. I love it. Well, you'll have to come back again because evidently we have 10 more varieties <laughs> we have to taste through at some point. Got to keep it. These, yeah, Waiting. no, these are delicious. They really are. Thank Can you. you just remind our listeners the three different wines that we tried? Sure. The first we tried was Berryessa Gap's 2019 Verdejo. The second was our 2016 Malbec. And the final 2016 Tempranillo. Wow. All really, really great wines. Congratulations, Nicole. You're putting yellow on the map. Thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week segments every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. 